Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. You only get 10% of the things you ever go for. So it definitely is a lesson in rejection. I sleep better knowing that I'm doing something that I want to do as opposed to being more successful, arguably, but at the cost of who I am. Sometimes we're so hard on ourselves. We can be so nice to others and we just deserve the same back. Welcome to the Elevate podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor. And I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Hello and welcome back to another special episode of the Elevate podcast. My guest today is a British stand-up comedian, a writer and a published author. In 2018, she launched her critically acclaimed PBC podcast, No Country for Young Women, which was named as one of the best audio 2018 by The Observer and Apple's top picks in 2018 also. She has made countless television appearances, which include The Unforgettables, which was on Channel 5, she was on Frank Skinner at Hay Festival on the Sky Arts program and Sunday Morning Live on BBC One. She released her debut memoir, Sex Bomb, The Life and Loves of an Asian Babe, this year in May 2022. In his open, raw and honest memoir, my guest today takes us on a ride from the beginnings of her forming her own identity as an Asian babe, to rejecting an arranged marriage and to rejecting the stereotyping, politicalization and fetishization of the hijab. Sex Bomb celebrates the joy of embracing sexuality and love as a British Indian Muslim woman and talks about smashing stereotypes. Well, here at Elevate, we are here for it and ready to unlearn in order to learn. So without further delay, I'd like to welcome today's special guest to the podcast, Sadia Azmat, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to take a closer examination of the wide array of subjects that you talk so openly about and are working to normalize for young women everywhere. Shall we just get straight in? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I like the sound of getting in there, definitely. Excellent. There's so much I want to touch on from your memoir. It's been such an eye-opening and quite confronting at some points reading some of the amazing and wonderfully wide array of subjects that are quite hard-hitting for lots of women but for you to have experienced already at such a young age you've encountered so much about growing up as a young female in London who wants to demystify some of the taboos that we have around being Asian and possibly what it means to wear a hijab. So one of the things that I think really resonated is how personal you got. So many of these instrumental and pivotal moments in your life have guided you on the journey to becoming the person you are today. A lot of people have described it like that. uh, You know, it's funny when it's yourself, you, um, I guess it's just your, your tone and style, but I think it was very important to be unrelenting. And as you 
hinted on a little bit confronting at times just because um, people are so not used to seeing women like us as being bold. I think people are just so easy at like dismissing us. And so I felt that being bold was the right um, choice here. Yeah, no, I, I really applaud your bravery because it takes courage to do that. So thank you. And I wonder if we should start with some of, as I do with most of my guests, and take you right back to Sadia, the little girl from East London. Where did you grow up? What it was like for you in the area, in your community? I know you mentioned that you grew up in not such a traditional, strict household with your mum and dad, but I'd love to know um, a little bit more about yourself. I know you from the book, it comes across as a, you're a young girl who was pretty outspoken, pretty fearless, but talk to me more about the, the words that would describe you. I love East London so, so much. Like it was a, it was a very diverse area. It was very... Um, almost like you could say arguably up and coming it was um real it was mixed being very very important and I would describe myself as like a good girl like I very much felt felt that I fit into the good girl mold so that's why I don't think I had the pressure to be good I it wasn't deliberate I just really really liked um my studies I I, I liked that um I had like a flair for writing or English um and I, I can't lie, I think one aspect of why I was so into academia was because um, I thought and, and understood that like the more I could educate myself, the less uh, pressure there would be of having an arranged marriage because I was busy studying. So that was it. You know, like everybody's childhood, it was full of like hope. And I I was a little bit chubby. And so I don't think I think I was a bit like a tomboy. And I don't think that guy has looked at me anything as anything beyond like a friend um yeah I love the fact that you use two terms that I'd like to pick up on one is good girl and the other obviously term is the arranged marriage which is a clearly an expectation that you'd grown up with is it something you'd heard something you'd seen or just something that you were told well basically Bollywood movies was like my parents like growing up only because it was like Bollywood is in the, was in the background and I felt like it was watching me or that I had to answer to Bollywood, which is so strange because I was like, I'm obviously British. I didn't see Asian women having relationships or marriages outside of um, what was arranged by their parents or what I understood that that was, that's what I understood arranged marriage to be. So it wasn't something that I liked the idea of because I was quite an individual and a free thinker. And so for, for my parents to like, I didn't even want them to buy my shoes, let alone pick my life partners. Was that a subconscious thing that you picked up through osmosis and through yes. film yeah, and through societal I, expectations that were put on you, not rather than an outward, but you weren't sat down as a young girl no. and told that you were going to have an arranged marriage. Okay. No, what happened is my parents were impressed when I was good at my, like I got good results and grades. And so they were like, um, you know, that impressed them. And um, I think because I wasn't like the pretty girl or whatever, I think that they didn't like the chances of, me with a guy uh, or they maybe they thought it would be a difficult marriage to arrange unfortunately or that I was a lesbian like we just didn't have conversations so you, you, we worked on assumptions both ways um and my assumption was that I just act like I don't know boys don't like boys don't care about them and then therefore they'll be off my back and I can just carry on doing the education and they're happy and um I guess it was just something I I left as a as a question mark or didn't really explore did you have cousins and siblings and family friends that 
were going through those types of experiences around you? We didn't have a huge family in in this country. Like our family, uh, my father's family are all like in India. You would hear of the friend of a friend having an arranged marriage or a marriage or whatever. But you, I think it was it wasn't something that people felt open to talk about. Like it was very privacy. It was like a very private endeavor. So it was all working off people's assumptions. I want to talk a little bit about identity and how heritage, religion, culture and cultural expectations can mix with your personal ideals. And in case, or in this case, for both of us, our Western values, which is where you were brought up and the peers with whom you're at school with. There's always this question, I think, and I'm assuming it confuses most kids as it does you probably as it comes across in your book, becomes a very confusing time for youngsters as teenagers, particularly, or young tweens as the girls I work with, especially those of us that come from immigrant families because our parents bring certain expectations to our who we think they should be and then we think we learn about who we think we should be and yet we're never really quite sure because we're working it all out for ourselves anyway and like you said if you're a part of an Asian community that doesn't talk about these things and you might be a lesbian you might not be but nobody knows because no one's asking the question because that's just what is not- a lesbian what yeah. is a lesbian for me to- <laughs> yeah, exactly what well, they don't even know the terminology for it all so I guess my question for you is how did you reconcile this for yourself and I suppose that the other question I have for you is being brought up in an Islamic community with the Islamic values, which can be seen by many of us who are ignorant as quite strict, maybe, and maybe in direct conflict with some of the things you were discovering for yourself and some of the inner truths that you started to discover and the desires and hopes you had for yourself. It's so weird, right? Because I don't think that I fit into either mold like or camp like West or East. Because of the tomboyish nature, I, I wasn't like, you know, um, the nice. I did try to wear the shirvakamis a few times and I didn't mind it because it was big and it kind of, you know, I guess it fit nicely or sat nicely. Um, it was modest. I guess as a comedian, I, I always had like to an extent a bit of an outsider mentality. So I never... I drew strength from that in that I didn't need anybody to make me belong. I actually needed to belong myself. So I needed to find belonging myself. In the book, you quite openly explain this monumental moment when you were a young girl, you're at a shop, discover this magazine, Asian Babes. And for the first time, you see an image of an Asian woman in a context that you'd never seen before. And you're also trying to work out how does that work with me and who I am? How did you reconcile all of this for yourself and how did you get to where you are today in terms of understanding the fact that I don't need to be restricted into a box? I realized that a lot of conversations weren't taking place and so I had to do a lot of the analysis myself and I was pretty fairly an, an, an analytical person and so when I heard the banter between men and non-Muslim men um, joking about porn magazines such as Asian Babes, I realized that... Um, it was a shock for me because I didn't realize that Asian women were anything but a housewife. I didn't realize they could be a streetwife or just, you know, a street person. Um, but yeah, I, I basically, I could, I could see things for myself that like sex was very um, all over the place. If you like, it was very uh, flagrant. It was around and that um, I would need to figure out this by myself and my journey. Um, in terms of like the community, I would say that, I didn't really feel part of that either because uh, my I didn't speak my um, home, my mother language, my mother tongue too fluently. So unfortunately, that's another area where I didn't feel too much 
of a belonging. But again, I turned that into an empowering thing because it wasn't something, if it wasn't something I was ever a part of, I couldn't have ever been excluded from it. And so a lot of the expectations were unspoken and, and based on judgment without deeper connection or, or thought or understanding. And so it didn't really matter to me what people thought or I didn't feel like much of an Indian. I didn't feel like too much of a British person either because I wasn't dating guys. So I didn't feel like a part of anything. So I guess it, I reconciled it in that I had to be there for myself. And like when I when I fancied men, I fancied them. It was just that I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know what, you know, what, what comes after having a crush. I wasn't sure that I should uh, approach them. And yet they wouldn't approach me either, right? Because I, of either how I looked or or because they didn't think that they could for a variety of reasons. And so it was almost like a deadlock. So you're hitting this wall and you're discovering yourself You that you do like, you have crushes, you've got a fancying other men. And at the same time, you're hiding behind bigger clothes. You're not feeling confident in yourself. You're wearing baggier clothes. You're calling yourself a tomboy. It's almost like you're protecting yourself from going anywhere closer to the other side because possibly it might be an expectation on you not to be able to do that is that correct I was very naive and I thought it was going to come it's going to happen it's going to happen for everybody it happened to Cinderella it's it just going to happen and so I really took that for granted for a very long time that there was I didn't have to do anything about it and that he would come all the time as people always say your time will come and uh, so yeah I didn't do anything about it but I didn't see that inaction as, uh, you know, as a wrong thing, just because also there wasn't anybody really around, like uh, either interesting or or interested. So there wasn't much to do. Again, like I'm, I lived a very boring early life in terms of just ticking the boxes, you know, doing the studies, uh, you know, being, being uh, conscientious. Yeah, so I think what you're saying basically is that a lot of our young girls and including us we're all fed the same line that prince charming arrives and the one arrives as you mentioned in the book and and that you will one day things fall into place and you go off and live a happily married life and yet there was something inside of you at one point in your life that decides that well okay i've been doing this and actually if i'm correct into interpreting this that you were quite well, you're very questioning, like you said, you're an analytical person, but also you became quite alone and quite isolated because like you said, there didn't have many people to talk to. You didn't belong in one community, didn't feel Indian enough for the Indian community, didn't feel Western enough for the Western community. So you kind of are floating almost existing and along this existence and, and trying to work it out for yourself, which can be really hard. Would you say that you found yourself, I mean, were they kind of, do you look back on that period and think of it as quite a dark time? No, when you're young, you're very, you, you're very, um, you've got a lot of energy and strength in terms of you haven't been broken by the world. So you are, you don't even know what you're in for. And um, I think a lot of the experiences were just that I didn't know that I deserved better or that there were other options. Like, unfortunately, I think I just like fought a lot of battles or I just I, I didn't really feel too bad about things because I didn't have this like epic sense of entitlement to anything or like, you know, that I needed a partner or or whatever, whatever, or, or, or even identity and belonging, which is so essential and you should feel entitled to it. But I think that we do make compromises um, being in the West. And unfortunately, like you said earlier, like uh, our parents' experiences are so different to ours. 
And you just don't have those conversations. Like you don't have those conversations. Are you happy you came here? Do you miss your home country? Like they just kind of really the, the second generation, I think they call it. I don't know even know why that is, but they just they just got on with it basically. And so without those conversations with them in terms of like, I could see that they miss their home country, but I think that they made that choice because they came to the West for something that they perceived to be better. And then now our generation is now has to decide like what, what compromise that that generation made in terms of like their culture and, and all of those sorts of things. And, and kind of like, I think, I got to a point where I, I really missed the fact that I didn't have much of an understanding of my Indian roots and that I, I had to compromise that to kind of fit in better for me to feel comfortable. But that 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 was important. But unfortunately, it was just not uh, it, it just didn't happen. The age of 19, you made a very conscious decision to wear the headscarf, the hijab. And for anyone who may not understand the cultural and religious significance of a head covering, I'd love you to maybe explain a little bit about that and then tell me one of the big goals for you is to debunk and re-educate some of us. What does it represent and what it, why is it important to you? I started wearing a hijab when I was 19. Um, I wore it on the weekends, um, sorry, on Saturdays to Saturday school. And then I felt due to that, that it was something that women, the, the female teachers wore it as well. And so it was something that I believed that was, um, you know, what women would wear. And I felt like when I removed it, that I was just delaying the inevitable and possibly it was due to fear. And I questioned myself for having that fear because um, how I wanted to look is how I wanted to look, regardless of what other people's perceptions or opinions were. So, uh, yeah, that's the reason why I chose to wear it. And um, I think it's beautiful. I think I think as a hijabi, your relationship with your headscarf changes. Um, so much of it seems to be about explaining it for others. It, you know, what do you have to wear it in the shower? All these silly things. But I know that, like, you know, you'll have like you have good days, good hair days and bad hair days, like same with the hijab, like you'll have a, a good hijab day. Sometimes my hijab's always falling off, like it's trying to like, my hair's trying to come out, but sometimes it will be really like staying on there. But that's obviously just the, the surface thing. I think where I didn't belong anywhere else, it was something to call my own. And so I wore it, I was lucky enough to start covering in a period before Muslim women became political footballs um, and where we were just used to be uh, attacked by the media. And, and then it became something that the media and the public sphere felt that they could comment on um, and that they would just like denigrate hijabi women or Muslim and Muslim women and Muslim men as well. So I feel like it's important to 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 wear this for yourself. Um, and I think that it's such a convenient narrative that the British media particularly like likes to perpetuate the fact that um, women wear it because a man is telling them to. I know so many hijabis and even the women who cover their face, which is in the carb, they do things because they want to do it. Nobody's forced them. So just because there are there obviously are cases where women might might have been asked to do something by a man or told. But um, those min minority, all those few instances should not be generalised. And so did you feel that the hijab was a way of connecting with your roots because you felt slightly displaced from them? 
you would wear it during Ramadan for modesty and you would wear it during prayer. It's something that most, well, all Muslim women are wearing intermittently throughout the day, even if you're not wearing it in the streets. So I I think because I, I grew up and was, you know, uh, in a very diverse area, it didn't really raise a lot of eyebrows. What happened is it became politicized. And then the Muslim women who wore it, our opinions didn't seem to count for anything. We became disempowered so that other people could comment on it about us. And we always get to have, we always are spoken about and never to. Just because we spoke about the hijab and relate it to what's going on in the world today in Iran. And if you wouldn't mind just giving me your own, I know it's obviously a really tragic and a really bigger issue around the world and what's happening, but with Masa Imani's untimely death and quite tragic outcome of things that are going around, clearly there, there's a revolution in Iran around whether or not head coverings should be, like you said, I think the issue is when a man tells you that you need to put this on versus when a woman who chooses to put one on herself. But I, I guess I would love for you to talk to me about the connotations of this, the ideologies around what head covering represents for the young girls and their communities. And if there is a young girl who wants to put one on, how does that inform her choice in terms of identity if others around her are fighting for freedom for not wearing it? <laughs> Suppose the contradiction must be a bit confusing for, for lots of people. So first of all, I'll, I'll answer both of those points. But the first of all, I would say that the hijab burning was highly offensive. Um, I feel like it was um, sensationalized. I feel like it was so insensitive to everybody who's Muslim and, and women who wear it. Like for every hijab that was burned, you know, that sometimes like the hijab is like, you know, it, it's just very meaningful. And I think that it was it was horrific to, to see that um, spectacle um I, 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 you know, I, my my condolences go out to the girl, but uh, I just think that there's so much attack of, of towards Muslims and Islam, and I just felt that there were a lot of people who, who liked seeing that for the wrong reasons, probably, um, and I think it was very um, hateful, and so I, I just thought that that was the wrong, wrong thing to happen. So I must say that straight away. Um, yeah, and in terms of like, I don't know that that's going to bring anybody back. So I, I just I found that highly offensive, um, and you wouldn't see other people's uh, religious um, garments or religious artifacts uh, treated like that. So why do that to Muslims uh, as well? So all the hijab, I should say. In terms of the hijab, going back to my point, which I do talk about in the book as well, is that I think. Um, to some young girls in the West, that the hijab can almost be seen as an act of rebellion because you see a lot of the compromises that your family made and that maybe you feel that they're not practicing as, you know, the way that you wanted it to be or that they've made some compromises and that you've actually stood up to decide that you don't want to, to make those compromises or that you're going to celebrate your faith by wearing it. And so... It is very difficult, different and difficult. No, it's very different for, for all women. It depends on the timing and, and where they are in their journey. And it can also change as well. So I would just say that do it for yourself. Like don't do it for um, reasons like, you know, to please other people or because uh, you think it's fashionable or something like just, you know, look into yourself and and again for me I didn't have to think about it too much so it might not be that you need to do a lot of soul searching but what I would say is that it's a very long-term commitment so 
if you are going to do it, like, you know, you need to just be prepared that it's a long-term kind of thing. So can I ask, but maybe I'm being really ignorant here, is the assumption that if you choose to wear a hijab, you're a practicing Muslim? It's one of the, it's one of the, and that's not ignorant at all. You can feel free to ask me anything, but then um, wearing hijab is one aspect of, of kind of like, you know, modesty and, and the dress. So it's like, it doesn't mean you are absolutely can be a, a practicing Muslim. You are just by believing in Allah and, you know, you, you can be a Muslim and not cover your hair for sure. But it's just um, practicing the, um, you know, one of the kind of dress requirements. It's like, that's, that's what I would say, but it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't define your faith. Okay, so are you a practicing Muslim then? I would say that I'm trying. Yeah, I mean, I could I could be more regular with my prayers. I won't I won't lie to you. I try my best, but um, I think I think you're Muslim if you you know, you you remember God every day, and you know you're doing what you're you know you're trying your best basically. You know, what I mean, you're praying, fasting, stuff like that, all sorts of things. Okay, so you do agree that the girls in Iran that are in schools that are asking that you know to have the choice of not wearing the hijab i'm sure that the way they reacted possibly is i can see your perspective on that but that the girls should have their choices and still they can still be practicing the religion but they don't yeah, have to be yeah, enforced yeah. into those into the clothes that men or schools are I, making. I, I feel like it's your choice i don't think that you should um especially like i don't i personally don't think that children should be forced to wear anything um and or even you know that age as schoolgirls i don't think that they think you're you're growing and you're so young and you know there's so much i mean unfortunately it's so much harder for tweens these these days because they've information overload with all sorts of things that we were lucky enough to have a bit more of a childhood where we could just be and they've got so much things being thrown at them um, and pressures as well. Um, I think this generation is doing so much um, that I haven't seen the pre previous generations doing to try to make things better because of some of the troubles that they're inheriting. So they may not understand um, in their you know, young um, positions the whole there's a whole bunch of politics around it that, you know, they so it's not that the intention maybe uh, maybe they did not intentionally cause that, but. You have to you have to appreciate that there's a lot of women who wear it and and that would just be really wrong to to see something that you um kind of like you know that you it's sacred to you or valuable you know really yeah important you to, respect yeah. and you care for and that you've had a relationship with like to see someone doing that something so extreme to that it's just uh, yeah it's just uh, it was just uh, sad because um it's uh I, and you you know it, no one should be uh no one should be hurt right but the thing what i what, what i have a problem with sometimes is that i must say amani right she's she's not a case in isolation no she's and not. so it's in, it's interesting how um certain cases just gain this traction but why don't we care about everybody like well i think it's a similar parallel analogy to george floyd that wasn't an isolated you know black the black community was not alarmed the rest of us were. So I think that's the issue is that it could be maybe there is a breaking point that people reach. I just think that having conversations and the point of podcasts like these is to make the conversations be something that are being held. Because I, like you said at the start of this podcast, no one used to talk when we were kids, right? No one spoke about these topics. No one had the confidence to bring up these types of things at dinner time um other than your school grades much wasn't discussed so you know there's very few um things and that's one of the one of the the topics I, I suppose I really wanted to address was the idea around mass generalizing people and like of course not all people in Iran should be painted with the same brush we're not doing that at all or not all people um who wear hijabs should be 
considered one way. And that's what I'm trying to really shine a light on. You were quickly marked as a girl who was not to be dated or to be had fun with because you were the marriage material girl because you had a hijab. Like this categorization, this idea that you fit a box when I think the idea of what you're doing with your book is trying to say, hey, actually, I'm not a girl that just does X, Y, Z or is, you know, has these thoughts. I actually have lots more to offer, but get to know me first. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely accurate. And I think it's I look like a wifey and I think that's very intimidating to men um, because I think that instead of getting to know me and wanting to have a conversation, they are worried that I just want to marry them. And so nothing happens. And so that's a shame. And I think it, 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 it kind of highlights your point precisely in that it's sort of, let's just talk and get to know each other and see where that might take us. Let's just drop all of the presumptions and like, why can't you just see me as a person as opposed to, kind of either an alarm bell or, or something that you need to, you know, that you already know, like there's so many people, and it's not just men, there's so many people presume to know me because of, of the sum of my parts, but they don't know me. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. So let's move on to slightly lighter topics, but more okay. really quite important topics, <laughs> boys and sex, <laughs> which, yes. which are two big things on most teen girls minds or all teens girls boys it doesn't matter however you identify no matter where you come from however in the asian community they're especially the south asian community they're the most taboo topics right the ones that we hide the most from and it's a you express some stark confrontational kind of ways in which you like to normalize these topics and i think you do it within your comedy you do it within the book i've listened to some of your podcasts you try and bring it out there and put it all on the table. And I and I, I really embrace that. I think it's wonderful. But first of all, I guess, what would you say is a good way to be healthy about the right, I guess, the word balance around being a real young girl, allowing yourself that freedom, being realistic, I suppose. And I, the trouble, I suppose, with South Asian communities is that for so long, there's been so much shame, I guess is the right word, around talking about sex and you only ever have sex once you've got married you know it's never something you do before marriage so I know that's changing and the narrative has has kind of come around but clearly lots and lots of young Asian girls are frustrated and they want to rebel but it leads to lots of problems yeah I mean it's a great question and and so important as well and I think that from in my case my advice to my younger self would have been to that. I mean, I don't think I gave myself a hard time, but it's OK not to know certain things. I think there's a huge pressure from society, especially when you're a young girl, to know everything um, and to be an adult and grow up really quickly and to be sexy and to be wanted by the opposite sex. Um, so I think it's OK to take your own time and to ask questions. Um, I think it's, it's it's a struggle when you feel like you can't talk to your family, but also around your friends, you need to know everything. And so, um, you know, prioritize your own um, curiosities and questions, like, you know, in a safe way, as in like using um, sources like yourself or, or, or reputable sources, um, because the internet can be really, really uh, toxic and horrible. And like, you don't want to feel like um, your best friend is like a YouTuber that you feel like you need to kind of uh, emulate. So love yourself and be be yourself. And even if you feel like that doesn't necessarily fit in with um, what is going on around you, um, I feel like trying not to please other people and definitely not 
doing something because you think it's going to make you cool. You should do something because it's you're ready to do it um, as opposed to being cool because you're really cool. We're all cool. It's easy for us to say that as we get older, I think, when we look back. But I think when you're in it, especially with the social media pressures and that you said the idea of what you think your best friend should look like as a YouTuber or someone else's life looks so much better than yours. And especially for South Asian community, I think that dating isn't always an option or experimenting with uh, boys is or, or girls, whatever it might be, particularly for Indian girls, that isn't something that is a topic that would be convenient or for parents to want to be able to address. So I, if you don't play by their rule book, the parents rule book, you are then in trouble in other ways, right? Like, or at least girls think that they are. And I, I think they start doing things behind their parents' back or they start to sneak around and then they meet the wrong type of guy or, they they might meet people that prey on their vulnerabilities. And that's what I worry about for young girls that are not empowered to take control of their own. And I think you might have even experienced parts of that. It's pretty much my story, actually. Um, I, I I think this is one of the reasons why I am very outspoken is that I, I do think it's very dangerous for women um, who are not so experienced in relationships to to not have an outlet or to not even know I think in my toxic relationship, I didn't know um, how toxic it was because you get blinded by it. You get seduced by other things. <laughs> you get seduced by other things. And so you don't you, you almost put to one side the things that you're compromising or how in some aspects it's really, really falling short. Um, and so that's that's unfortunately one of the negative aspects of, uh, you know, having low self-esteem or, or lack of street experience or even possibly a poor mental health because you do things that you ordinarily wouldn't do out of you know out of character because you feel like you attach yourself to the thing that you're that's hurting you sometimes or that you think that is is good for you even when it's not so good for you and so you do need to have networks you need to have support groups you need to have a really good friend that you for some girlfriends or some friends, they they just don't like it when you're happy. So you need to make sure that there's a good, good friend that you can kind of like um, bounce off of. You mentioned, I think, is it Stockholm Syndrome that you just referred to there where you're kind of... Yes, absolutely. So it's like, I think I told myself that, well, nobody else was going to have sex with me and that's all I need. So that's fine. But it's not. And then you end up not having... I don't know. I think you... I know this sounds really hacked, but like... Before somebody can love you, you need to love yourself. Because if you can't love yourself, then it might be really difficult for you to accept somebody else's love. So self-acceptance is really important. And I think you referred to this toxic relationship, which you just referred to, as about a young man you met at the gym. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. He becomes quite a prominent feature in your life, as you share, and quite openly about, and then you develop some deep realizations. And I think one of them is about this idea around self-acceptance. Now, like many girls, I think we all think love is blind and we can't see what was really happening until maybe you remove yourself from that situation. But you, your part of you is sort of being depleted. Each They take a little part of you with these experiences, don't they? And they do form you if you kind of get yourself back up. What messages would you give 
young girls that might be listening to this or parents who might be listening to this who identify not just with boys attention but at this point in life it's the number of likes on TikToks it's the number of followers that you have on whichever medium you're on and I think no matter how many times as a parent or as a teacher I might tell my daughter you are beautiful just the way you are until she hears it from the peers and the wider community I mean it's really hard isn't it for us how do we get yourself feeling lovable yeah I mean there's two things there so for the parent and for the um for the kids I think so for the parents I think that they need to be realistic and they need to be there they need to be real parents they can't just let these social media or phones babysit their children so they need to give their child balance so that they're experiencing the real world like walking in a park or whatever it is in the real world holidays family time that is not a screen time so that's what I would try to drive home because so many so many families just let young kids have unlimited access yeah yeah and it's not great and so um in terms of for the children to love themselves I would say that I think you have to be kind to yourself. Affirmations can help, like saying something that really resonates with you, that's positive. So even if it's something like, I'm going to have a good day or that, I love myself. I I love myself is really important because sometimes we're so hard on ourselves. And so trying not to be hard on yourself, imagining what you would say to your friend and then being trying to use that for yourself because sometimes we can be so nice to others and we just deserve the same back. And it's just, it's easily done knowing that change is possible and that it doesn't matter like if previously you didn't exercise such positivity or self-kindness, but that it can change and that you can um, kind of develop that relationship because all you have is yourself um, and sex is going to be great when it comes along, but you need yourself. Before you need anything else. Yeah, to make you feel right. The other kind of stereotype or topic that I felt that you've done a great job of breaking boundaries on is the typical job that a female Indian girl might have, which yours is, uh, you know, very fruitful and and very wide in its variety of things that you do. But being in the entertainment world, being in being a stand up comedian, hosting a podcast, working for BBC Asia, all these kinds of great things that you're doing, which I know did not come easily for you. You know, there was a lot of hard work, perseverance and, and grafting because you were hit with lots of roadblocks like loads and I know it's easy to talk about the successes and 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 only highlight where you are today but one of those great moments for me is like thinking the fact that you sat there for for countless countless years or days on a call center working in a job that you were enjoying particularly because you were trying to make your way in the your true calling your true passion which is to be a comedian talk to me a little bit about that yeah, I know. Crazy. Um, so look, Asians, we're not jokers. Like we we do the hustle. We have a free days, free jobs at the same time and stuff like that. Um, I was really lucky to get into comedy. Um, it was because it was something that I'd never seen Asian women, let alone a hijabi, do. And I was in a one-to-one at that very cool center. And then I was just so bored. And I think it's interesting because boredom for me is a huge motivation. <laughs> and so when I'm bored, I'm just like, I think I take it as a sign that I need to adjust something. So I try to turn it into a positive because it's never good when I'm distracted. I had a one-to-one with my manager. I told him that I wanted to get into writing. And then he he introduced me to somebody who then told me about that world. Um, it's really hard to get into writing. So I ended up just doing stand-up because it was like easier. Um, and then it, it's really, really competitive, but it's just easier to kind of learn to practice and then perform straight away uh, because you need to have so many credits as a writer and 
as a brown person as well, like at that time it was uh, unheard of. One so one person told me that you you only get ten percent of the things you ever go for. So it definitely is a lesson in rejection because a lot of the things, as I'm sure you already know, is um a lot of the things is no, like we love you, but no, like and it's like is a very shallow and fake industry at many, many times. But then the things that you do get, like my book, like my podcast, even though you probably had to get a lot of knocks to 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 get there, as long as you don't give up, um, those things are really, really meaningful and make make everything else worth it. So um, I always wanted to write a book and I never thought that it could happen, especially one that I literally got to choose so much of the tone and and be really authentic in and and write in my own voice um, and not be told by anybody how to portray myself and so that's a huge um, kind of win I think. One of your big sketches I think that's become really successful as you go on to your career is that I am not Malala. So I was really lucky Um, I wrote a show called I am not Malala and then I just like reached out so I'm really like I try and um I try and I try and like be nepotistic which is nepotism I'm a very nepotistic person so I if if I find if I could have an in with Tom Cruise I would just email him so I emailed Christina Lamb who's a journalist who um helped Malala write her biography and she basically knew Malala and then I did a gig in Birmingham so I was talking to Christina at the time and then she she said Malala might be up for coming and then she did like with her whole family and it was so cool she's an amazing girl and she's like made such a difference and she's like the nicest person like she brought her younger brother and they were playing in the room in backstage and like literally really really like it feels like you're in there with royalty she's a very kind-hearted girl that's just gorgeous she's one of the elevate users so she's definitely somebody we talk about a lot in my resilience module because i think that what she's done and how she's overcome the obstacles that she has really shows how resilient one child of 13, 14, 15 with the right support can really be if if we work towards it. So, and another girl in a hijab on the cover of Vogue, which I think, you know, growing up as a young girl in Vancouver, I don't think I would have ever imagined that. So I think she's done incredible things. I think what you're doing is incredible. I think waking people's sleepy thoughts on different cultural norms and expectations are really important so yeah it must have felt like a a really gratifying experience meeting her yeah I think she's a huge great sport as well because it's not easy um to to be spoken about and she's been through so much so um I was doing jokes on on that material and and she was there and I I don't think that the dream could ever be you know more uh it couldn't be dreamier than that but Mm -hmm. like yeah it, it really meant a lot to me because we're a small um, community in terms of uh, Asians in this industry and hopefully it'll keep growing. I think it is growing, um, which is great. Um, and we just have to kind of keep uh, putting messages out there that are authentic to us as opposed to just kind of emphasizing uh, what other people want. Because I feel like for so long, our sexuality seems to be um, oppressed, but it's like, we're not the ones who are oppressed. It's like, stop. Why are you controlling our how we define ourselves or our narrative. So I think that we need to just keep keep the power of our narratives to ourselves and not playing to other people what they want, even though that comes with reward and that comes with, you know, opportunities as well. But I think I think I sleep better knowing that I'm doing something that I want to do as opposed to being more successful, arguably, but at the cost of who I am. 
Right. That leads me beautifully, as if we don't mind ending on this last question around what you mark as success. And do you call yourself, do you feel like a success today? And what's next for Sadia? Nice, nice question. Um, so I have a bit of comedy, uh, very short clip on Comedy Central that will be coming out next year, which I'm very excited about because I love Comedy Central and uh, that's just a big dream come true. I'm hoping to write a second book, uh, so I need to pull my finger out um, and get a proposal together, whatever. I'm in the early stages of, of figuring that out and then um, hopefully doing a bit more stand-up uh, and, yeah, just uh, generally being up for up for things, whatever life uh, whatever comes up I suppose that's amazing and it, did you ever imagine where you were in one of those days being bored in a call center that you would be where you are today I'm really blessed I'm really really lucky I, I feel it's, it's such a privilege to be able to be on stage and talk about your thoughts and be silly and goof around and it's really fun and I think I guess I was made for it because I was always a bit of a uh it's one of the few things I'm really good at is like making people laugh or just being irreverent. And so it's lovely to be able to do something that you're good at. Oh, that's true. And I think that is a really good message for young girls as well, is to keep finding the passion that is yours as, as opposed to what other people might think you should be, i.e. don't be a doctor just because your parents want you to be a doctor. Oh, that's really, really, really exciting. And I, I wish you all the very best in your future. I can't wait for the second book. If people want to get a hold of your first book, I will link everything in my show notes for all my listeners. And if people wanted to come and watch you live, are you doing shows at the moment or? I will be. Um, if you follow me on gram, uh, it's S-A-D-I-A underscore A-Z-M-A-T-F. And so I'm like literally living on Instagram. So I'll post everything um, upcoming on there. Fantastic. I look forward to hopefully coming to one of your shows myself. <laughs> it was so nice to meet you, Sadia. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your experiences with us. And I hope that your message, I know, in fact, I know your messages will reach lots of families and really at least start conversations going that possibly we weren't having before. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.